The reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel." I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish the kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in your, in your sight. O Lord God, our rock and our redeemer, Amen. I have to admit being somewhat taken aback at the level of interest generated by one particular news report this week. 
Apparently, Gordon Brown and Buckingham Palace have apparently been discussing proposed changes to the rules of succession to the throne. What? Revisiting the 1701 Act of Settlement? Do I hear someone cry? No, I didn't hear anyone cry that. (laughs) But that's what they're intending to do. According to a BBC poll, most people want the rules to be changed in order to put royal women on an equal footing with royal men. They also want a future monarch to be able to marry whoever they like, irrespective of religion. Currently, Roman Catholics are off limits to the monarch. Now, whilst it's a pleasant break from the usual grim news of deepening global recession, climate change, shootings, bombings, and the like, such an interest in things so far removed from most people's everyday lives is a little surprising. The timing of this particular news story is, however, very appropriate for us. This week is the last in our series looking at King David. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Maybe you're pleased to see the back of it. But anyway, it is the last. And, um, and we turn our attention to uh, God's plans for King David's succession. So there is a link. And in case you were wondering, God's plans for his king probably wouldn't meet the approval of most of those polled by the BBC. We can think about that later. Anyway. As we turn to our passage, it may, may be helpful. We're not quite there yet. Anyway, it doesn't matter. As we turn to our passage, it might be helpful to ha- just have a brief cap of the story so far with David. The Israelites have been rescued from slavery in, e- in Egypt and brought at last to the land of their own that God promised them. After some time without a king, they are ruled by Saul, who turns out not to be faithful to God. David the shepherd boy. Cue David. Yeah, do you like that? David the shepherd boy is chosen by God to be Saul's successor, but before becoming king, he spends some time in Saul's service, where he proves to be a talented military general. Later on, he finds himself on the run from Saul, who, jealous of David's talent and popularity, tries to kill him. When Saul dies, David is at last anointed king, and that's basically where the book of 2 Samuel starts. After a further unsettled time of fighting, David at last subdues his enemies and manages to establish himself as king in Jerusalem. Having become settled in his rather plush Jerusalem palace, David becomes aware that the Ark of God is rather embarrassingly housed in a singularly less impressive setting, a tent made of animal skins. This tent served as shelter as the Ark traveled around the desert with the pilgrim people of God, but of course now they're settled. David is no doubt motivated by a desire to see God honored, and so he has a plan to correct this incongruity at the earliest possible opportunity. David decides that he will build a dwelling place, a house, or a dwelling place for God, that is, a temple. After all, God is, after all that God's done for me, it seems only right that I should do this for him, he reasons. And in making plans to build a house for God, he's very much in line with the ancient Near Eastern practice. There are numerous examples of ancient kings who, having experienced the favor and blessing of their gods, particularly in military victory, responded with temple building. This devotional act was widely seen to be a way of securing future favor and blessing. You did this for me, I'll do this for you, and then you can do this for me. A bit of mutual back-scratching, if you like. But God will have none of it. The pagan 
quid pro quo mindset is, it seems, light years removed from 2 Samuel 7. God will not permit David to build a temple house for him. Not that the temple doesn't matter, but it can wait for a few years, as it does. God shows that he is nothing like the pagan gods. David cannot place a claim on God's favor by building a lavish temple for him. David already has God's favor because God is gracious. God has already done great things for David, bringing him from tending the flock to ruling Israel. He's brought him safely through peril after peril, and he's now subdued all his enemies. He's established him as king in his Jerusalem palace. And still, God promises more of his favor in the future. David doesn't need to gain God's favor. He already has it. The God of all grace is giving and giving because that is what God is like, unlike the pagan gods. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking we can influence God, make him think more of us or love us more. But we can't. That's supposed to represent sort of Bambi eyes. Do you know the one? <laughs> but we can't influence God. A simple motto that I find very helpful is, there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. Paired with this is, there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. We sang in our song, your grace has found me just as I am. It's because of what God is like, not what we are like, that that he is gracious and loving towards us. It's not because of what we're like, it's because of what God's like. God has done and will do amazing things for each one of us, however undeserving, because that is the way he is, full stop. And so here we learn something of God's graciousness. He gives simply out of who he is. Related to this, closely related to this, is another aspect of God, that he acts with complete freedom and beyond the influence of anyone or anything outside of himself. That's what we mean to call God sovereign. He, He chooses what he does totally freely. David learns here that even though in many senses his plan was a good one, he is not the one to call the shots. God calls the shots because God is sovereign. David had to get on board with what God was doing. Jesus' attitude, of course, was the same. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. And that's a lesson for us too. It's God that calls the shots, not us. We need to be alert to what God is doing getting to know his character as revealed in Christ and as revealed in the scriptures. And we need to get on board with him. It's the only bus in town that's going anywhere. And so what is God up to? Well, we learn something of what God is up to in this passage. Our gracious, sovereign God reveals himself and his plans to David and to us. And wonderful plans they are too. We will build up a picture of God's plan as revealed to us in this passage in three main sections. The first part deals with God's king, the second with God's people, and the third with its scope, with the scope of God's plan. So the king, the people, and the scope. Firstly, God's king. God promises in the second half of verse 9 to make David's name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And in the second half of verse 11, picking up on the house-building theme, God says that David will not be the one to build a house for God, but God will build a house for David. Do you pick up on that wordplay? There's lots of that in the Bible, incidentally. 
if you're alert to it. You usually have to know the Hebrew, which I don't, but lots of wordplay. And that, this is another example of it. Two different types of house. The type of house that God will build for David is not a physical dwelling, but a ruling dynasty, a succession of kings that are descended from him. Our gracious sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule. God will make David's name great and establish a house for him. David must have been ruling from this. Not only has David been plucked from obscurity, tending sheep to the premier position of the land, God is now promising to rank him among the greatest men on earth and promising to give him a legacy stretching far into the future. We learn of David's response a little later on when we look, when we, uh, look at his prayer together. We'll do that at the end of this sermon. Secondly, the second part of God's plan concerns his people. Our gracious sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule God's redeemed people. You'll notice, it, notice that this reference to God's people is bracketed between the twin promises concerning David, that he'd be great and that he'd have a house. And then right in the center is the center of God's concern, which is for his people, Israel. Right in the middle of this passage, dealing with God's promises about a king, are God's plans for his people. Because, of course, the king doesn't exist for his own benefit. What is a king without a kingdom? God establishes the Davidic dynasty for the sake of the people. Leaders do not exist for their own benefit. Sadly, unlike many of the leaders in recent history and current, currently, who seem to rule in order to be able to get as much as they can for themselves and seem to show very little, if any, concern for their people. David's kingship is the instrument by which God is to accomplish his goal to plant Israel safely in the land that he's promised them, a home to be enjoyed in peace. Our gracious, sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule God's redeemed people. It's always been God's plan to have a treasured people for himself. Having promised to Abraham that he'd make him a great great nation, he rescued Abraham's descendants from Egypt and took them to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Under David's kingship, God means to bring an end to terror, trembling, and turmoil, and to inaugurate a new era of peace and prosperity. One of the key metaphors, one of the key images for God's um, king is the shepherd. God, of course, calls himself a shepherd. And the shepherd is there for the flock, to look after the flock. I feel a bit like a shepherd of my family sometimes. Um, we have a small flock of four children. Um, how old are they? I don't know. I'll, I'll work it out and tell you later if you're interested. Lose track. But anyway, um, we were out cycling this afternoon in the sun, glorious that it was, and feeling very much like a shepherd. Some of them are only just learning to cycle, and it's rather wobbly, and we sort of took the risk and went out on the you know, roads and pavements. And my seven-year-old son ended up accidentally scraping a car. <sighs> now, of course... That is one of the little sheep. I'm the shepherd. I'm responsible for what my son does. What would you have done? Anyway, with my, under my wife's eye as well, I decided I needed to write a note and leave it under the windscreen wiper of this car with the contact number. But basically, I am the shepherd, and I'll, I'm the one that's going to have to pay the price 
to get my son out of that trouble. He doesn't have any money of his own, and it wasn't really his fault, to be honest. We shouldn't have, um, we shouldn't have thought he was stable enough to go that close to the cars. But th- it struck me that that's a bit like what a shepherd is responsible for. When the sheep mess up and they get themselves lost, the, she- the shepherd takes the flack. And, of course, that's what God's king is supposed to be like. King David is there for the people. He's not there for his own benefit. Thirdly, the third part of God's plan concerns its scope. Our gracious sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule God's redeemed people forever. For a time, God's people did know peace and security, reaching its peak during the reign of Solomon, who was King David's son, of course, the one who was, in fact, to build the temple for God. But this time of prosperity didn't end. It didn't last long, however. The Davidic kings, by and large, failed to promote the safety and welfare of God's people, and with the result that some 400 years or so later, they were exiled to Babylon. But God still, through the prophets, promised a future and a hope that his people would dwell securely and free from fear. And this confidence that the prophets had was built on that last element of God's revelation of his plans to David, that the Davidic king would rule forever. The foreverness of God's promise guarantees that it cannot be broken by any of the powers set against it. And in our passage, there are three powers here that are listed and disregarded each in time. Death, sin, and the ravages of time. Firstly, the foreverness of God's Davidic king cannot be broken by death. This is verses 12 to 13. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Even when David dies, the Davidic kingship will continue in his offspring. The first of whom is Solomon, but the promise refers to an ongoing line of kings. Cannot be broken by death. Secondly, the promise cannot be broken by sin. Verses 14 to 15. I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, speaking of the king, I will punish him but my love will never be taken away from him. The Davidic kings inevitably sinned, and when they did, they reaped the consequences for themselves personally and for God's people. But to continue with the image of the house, whilst any current resident in the house might face disaster, the house itself cannot be demolished. It simply comes to have a new inhabitant later on. The third power. Thirdly, the promise cannot be broken by the ravages of time. David's throne will last forever, as it says in verse 16. Our gracious sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule God's redeemed people forever. Death, sin, and the ravages of time will never frustrate God's kingdom plan through David's dynasty house. It is unstoppable. Does that remind you of anything that Paul wrote? Well, it did me. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The plans of our gracious sovereign God are simply unstoppable. But how can this be? How do we reconcile this promise with what we know happened? We know from history that the Davidic dynasty only lasted 400 years or so before being crushed by the regional superpower of the day. God's people never again experienced the prosperity they experienced during the time of Solomon. And even when they returned from exile, they continued to be occupied and overrun by foreign powers. 
This was the situation right up to the time when there was born another child of the line of King David. A son of David, a son of David in whom no sin was found. A son of David who, as we learn from the Easter story, trampled over death, rising victoriously from the grave. It's this son of David, Jesus, who has begun his endless reign at the place of supreme power and authority in the universe, what the Bible calls the right hand of God. This son of David is ruling now. The line of Davidic kings was never broken, and the final king of David's dynasty has come. He is the one who is victorious over death, sin, and every other power set against him. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer of God's people, the Davidic king who will rule God's redeemed people forever. It's under his eternal rule that God's people will finally find a safe home in the city, so safe that its gates can be left wide open, the city we have told about in the book of Revelation. Our gracious sovereign God promises that a Davidic king will rule God's redeemed people forever. So in closing, how should we respond to this revelation of God's plan? I'd like to suggest that we should take our cue from David, someone described as a man after God's own heart, which I think is something that we should all want to be. David's prayer in response to this revelation of God is the second half of chapter 7 that we didn't read. So I think it would be good if we did read this prayer together. We'll, um, just in a sec, we'll have it on the, on the screen as well, so you, you needn't pick up the Bible if you don't want to. We're going to do it antiphonally, which means alternate sides. Some sections we'll do together, and when it says left, can it be this side? And when it says right, that side. Okay. So your left and your right, not mine. So what, how does David pray? Well, David starts by praising God for his glorious plan. This is roughly the first half of his prayer. He then moves on to petition God to do as he promised. And here David shows us, incidentally, how we should pray. We should pray according to God's will, which is, of course, what Jesus taught. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The major task of prayer is to take God's promises and to pray that they will come to pass. As someone once said, prayer pleads promise. Prayer pleads promise. We take what God has already promised and pray for that to come about. So let us, with David, praise God that he is gracious and sovereign and pray that he may do all that he has promised so that his name will be great forever. So let's stand together and we'll pray David's prayer together.